Hey beautiful people, I hope that you guys are having the best day of the whole 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 week since it's the weekend that I'm actually literally recording this one um, but even if you guys are listening during the week I, I hope that the whole week is amazing just like you of course so this is Georgie by the way, hi um, so I'm just sending you this voice before you guys actually listen to Brian Herder's episode because on the first five minutes due to the US internet connection very bad you us seriously you guys need to really fix this anyways um so due to that technical issue the voice of brian speaking is actually dropping out and it's it's a bit distorted uh, so because of that on the first five minutes it's a bit hard for you guys to actually listen because uh, sometimes there's no sound at all so if you please skip five minutes in front then you'll be having the most like it's the best episode you can ever listen to uh, of Brian Herda. So I hope that you guys enjoy. Have fun. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another sizzling episode of the Stripping the Dipping podcast. It's your dynamic duo of Denzel Clarkson, a.k.a. the modern-day Jim Rossenthal, and I've got the brilliant F1 Black, a.k.a. the modern-day Murray Walker in the building. And speaking of a building, the temperature's just increased, just like I said, Pirelli tires in here, because we've got a very, very special guest. He's a multiple race winner in car slash IndyCar and is known as an IndyCar legend. He's a very successful team owner and a father to one of the hottest prospects on the current IndyCar roster too. So without further ado, our listeners, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. It's the one and only Brian Herter. Brian, uh, how's everything going? And where are you joining us from today? Oh, it's going great. And thank you. That's, that's quite... Um, <clears throat> we're actually in... Uh, did... yeah. in the for oh wow that's very exciting brighton and you know like like you mentioned there as well, you've obviously got Brian Hurt Automotive or Autosport as a team participating as part of the TCR kind of uh, category. And then also for Colton, a big week too, because he, he's like one of the factory drivers in that BMW program for the LMDH or LMP class. And it's been really interesting just to see them, Acura, I believe as well, Porsche um, coming together and the likes of Chip Ganassi, Penske and the other kind of dynasties coming together in uh, what will be a very interesting uh, series for people to follow with these new prototype hybrid cars. So very, it sounds very exciting and we're looking forward to that. What we're going to do to kick it off first, Brian, is we're going to talk about some highlights from your own career. And uh, I wouldn't think of a better person to do that than Black himself. So Black, I'm going to alley-oop you into this. Thank you very much. And Brian, fantastic to meet you virtually. Um, I remember watching you. We have Eurosport over in the UK, and that was how we watched Champ Car in the 90s. And, and lots of our younger listeners are going to be wondering what that, what that was, but let's get into it. Um, so looking <laughs> at your early career, <laughs> and, and uh, my, my colleague uh, Denz will talk to you a bit about Colton, but what's really interesting is that you sort of stuck to the US 
um, sort of feeder series. So you absolutely dominated Indy Lights and it looks like in your second series, you just couldn't stop winning. Um, when did you first sit in a, a, a motor car or a racing car and, and when did you know that you were going to be a racing driver? Um, I went to my first was in a local library, took a little track in Connecticut. I just fell in love with racing. I never wanted to do anything else. I a long time. You know, I was 18 when I finally got my race license and started. And you had to be before you could ever get near a race car, of course. Things are dumb. Yeah. Absolutely. As as I think your son is is proving uh, a lot on, on you can do a lot before your 18th birthday. Um so you he's so you are uh, he's still young yeah. I mean, I, he's, Wow. Um, well we um <laughs> It's one of those things where I guess at the Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner table, you know, maybe Colton knows not to, uh, I don't know, talk too much about, <laughs> talk too much about that. But um, he, you've both <laughs> been incredibly successful and it's, it's incredibly rare. Um, a, a quick question for you about as you transitioned into Champ Car, I think it was uh, 94. Um, and I understand you had a bit of an accident uh, in your first series, uh, first season. Can you talk a little bit about that and, um, you know, whether that affected your uh, sort of meteoric rise in the sport? So it was, I think, my fourth in my first race that year had been the Indianapolis 500. That was my first Indy, Indy car race. It was on our drive race. And it was about the fact that race I was him. didn't practice pretty soon. And uh, held this in seven to my uh, various internal injuries. So, stop my that time. Though I was able to come back in the following year. Uh, that was a one year. A lot of that was, wasn't, I wasn't still fully healthy. I struggled. I was able to with Freya Hall after that. You know, I do wonder if I look back, you know, if that my trajectory, if that affected how I drove, it meant uh, did, but it was a pretty, I do look back at, you know, things might have been different had it not been for that. Well, I mean, thinking about the success you did have, and you talked a bit, you sort of skipped over joining, well, you talked about Chip Galassi Racing, and you got your pole position at, at Phoenix. Um, and when you went over to Ray Hall, you, you had success at Laguna Seca. I might look at you actually as probably like the most successful driver in the 90s at that track. What was it about road courses um, or street circuits that you really connected into? And, and would you say that you were more specialized in those than perhaps the ovals? It's much more natural discipline for me. Some guys are able to transition. It's one of the unique things about race cars. For a whole super speedway. 
excel at all of them. Some, some maybe certain disciplines come easier than others. <clears throat> For me, um, you know, even though I did have the pole, you know, oval racing was something I had to work a lot harder at and took me a lot longer to get to get proficient at. <clears throat> but uh, the road racing was the, the thing that, you know, I was always the best at or, or most comfortable at. The street courses I, I learned over time and certainly the ovals, you know, it took me even longer to really finally kind of understand what it took to do do well on those tracks. So um, it's really interesting you talk about road courses coming more natural to you. And in a bit, Dens will ask you about Colton's career, but you, you came up in the US system. Did you ever think, gosh, I'm probably like a, naturally a bit of a European. Maybe I should ply my trade <laughs> on the other side of the Atlantic. Did that ever cross your mind? Were there sort of budgetary constraints? What, what were you thinking? It did, and I, and I wanted to. Uh, I went over in 1991, uh, there's a scholarship here, the Team USA scholarship put on by a guy named Jeremy Shaw that's still going to this day. And he takes Americans over to do the Formula Ford Festival, which I did. Uh, he now does the Walter Hayes Trophy as well. <clears throat> but I did that and it got me over to Europe and I met a lot of guys. I met, you know, Jackie Stewart. He had his F3 team at the time. I actually tested for Alan Docking in a Formula 3 car. I met with a number of teams, uh, Bowman team. And I wanted to, I wanted to race in Europe. I wanted to race in Formula Three the following year, but I, you know, it was, it was difficult, and there wasn't much. Even Formula One wasn't very followed or very well known in the U.S., let alone British F3. And it, as an American, it was just I was never able to raise budget to do that. Where at least racing at home in the states, I was able to put enough budget together to kind of keep myself going. <clears throat> but if I'd had, if I, if I'd had my choice, I would have loved to take a crack over there and, and did try awfully hard to do that i'm sure you did and and it's it sounds that we've had had a few sort of aspiring drivers colin queen may have actually had that scholarship recently he's certainly american and an american in formula ford and has been very successful last year um looking at your indycar career and, and we're going to have to talk about it the pass um I, I don't know if it makes your heart sink uh but for those, those listeners uh who haven't heard about the pass um uh, you were leading the Laguna Seca Grand Prix, a race that you went on to win uh, on two occasions. Uh, and unfortunately, on the last lap, um, Alex Zanardi, who went on to be a double champion in, in India or a champ car, overtook you through the corkscrew. First of all, because we're Europeans, tell me, <coughs> Alex Zanardi, did he cross that boundary and was that an illegal pass? <laughs> <clears throat> well, certainly in today's day, and it, you know, by today's interpretation, yes, that was a shortcut and it wouldn't have flown but then was a different time and it it did so you have to say okay well done to you and uh you know it's obviously not fun to be part of be on the wrong end of that um you know i i i don't have nightmares about it i don't you know i don't look back on it now i mean it was it, it did bother me at the time obviously but a lot of a lot of time has passed and i've actually had some actually really good conversations, private conversations with Zanardi more recently when he was over here uh, driving the BMW and he was teamed teamed up with my son. And we, we had some really frank conversations about it. You know, at the time, time changes perspective, time changes a lot of things. And, you know, I, I think knowing what Alex has been through and, and, you know, sort of ups and downs that his life has thrown at him, 
you know, I, I don't look back at it now with anything other than, um, you know, just memories of that time and, and being part of a really great era in the sport. And, you know, that was obviously not my day, but I'm, I was happy to be able to come back the following year. And, and ironically, it was Alex and I, again, at the end of the race, battling it out. And I was able to, I, I'll say even the score, you know, I was able to win that one. So, you know, I'll call it a draw at Laguna Seca with he and I. <laughs> yeah, we'll call it a draw. You went on to have two victories uh, at Laguna Seca and you seemed really dialed in there. Before I hand back to Denz, just a quick question about your sort of memories, because for me that was, and maybe maybe we're getting back there now, that was really the peak for me for Champ Car, just sort of the vibrancy, the talent, um, the competitiveness. Could you reflect on perhaps your your kind of the, your best memory from your time in Champ Car and also perhaps the toughest or, or best driver you faced? Yeah, I mean, it was just it was just a great time, right? I mean, I've always been a fan and, and I have a lifelong love for the sport of IndyCar racing. I think it's a great format, a great formula, and the racing is always good. But certainly, like all forms of motorsport, it kind of goes through some peaks and valleys and you know, proud to have been part of it at a time when I think it really, it, it took off when Nigel came over in, in the nineties, straight off, you know, reigning Formula One world champion came over to Newman Haas and there was so much fanfare and so much attention on the sport at that time. And then that's what really attracted a lot of uh, European up and coming stars like Alexander Zanardi who ended up coming over and having great success and Juan Pablo Montoya, you know, and, and, you know, you can name quite a few guys like that who, who came over sort of in the, in the wake of, of uh, Nigel Mansell. It was just, it was just a great time because it, it felt important what you were doing. There's just loads of people watching and uh, you know, to have that kind of fandom around what you're doing. It's an amazing time to be part of that. And, uh, you know, I feel fortunate, you know, kind of experienced a lot of those kinds of things that some, maybe some of the younger guys haven't seen firsthand yet. Thanks, Brian. Fantastic. I'll hand to Dens now. Brilliant memories. Oh, thank you there, Black. And um, Brian, I just wanted to kind of um, sequence into that kind of theme as well, you know, about this, the plethora of drivers this in your generation. You know, you had the likes of Jules DeFaron, Dario Franchitti, uh, my friend Mark Blundell as well, Jimmy Vassa, Bobby Rehu, Michael Andretti, Paul Tracy. From that kind of like pool of amazing drivers like yourself, Brian, which driver from your generation would you rate the highest? And who would you say was your favorite teammate of all? So, I mean, the two guys I really enjoyed racing against the most were Alan Sir Jr. and Michael Andretti. Uh, as competitors out there, but also two of the two of the fairest. I mean, I think they set the bar very high for just how they raced people. And that, you know, you could go into a corner side by side with one of those guys and 99.9 times out of 100, you're both going to come out the other end because there was mutual respect and they took care of you as much as you took care of them and they raced you the way you raced them. So I really enjoyed having that experience with those guys, but also just, you know, the chance to race against so many great names, like you said, and, and, you know, in terms of natural talent, I would say that when he came in, Juan Pablo Montoya was the most naturally gifted or talented driver I ever 
competed against. He, I, I, you know, when you're out on a track with some somebody, sometimes you see things that you can't see on TV. And I remember watching him do some things in the car that um, you always think I can beat anybody. But there was a few times when he came in that he, I watched him do some things. And if I was honest with myself, I was like, shit, I, you know, I can't do that. I could imagine, Brian, and like you mentioned as well, like there's just so many different drivers from that period, you know, and all now, like a lot of them have gone on to kind of become very successful like you as well in terms of owning a team or kind of running like a academy for drivers that are up and coming and going through the ranks as well. And, you know, have had success in other disciplines too. But one other question before we get on to Colton, uh, Brian, was um, as a driver, does your mentality change at all, like wheel to wheel with other drivers? Because, you know, Black also mentioned the kind of rivalry, the fierce one between you and Alex Zanardi there. And, you know, with some of the bombastic moves he would do, like the one in the corkscrew, for example, in 96, or, you know, the move he did in Vancouver, you know, um, the following year. Yeah. Did, it, did you did you ever kind of like look back at that at the time and say, well, okay, this time when Alex comes up the inside, I'll position my car or maybe I'll give this guy a bit more room because I know he's more like, you know, chaos prone. Does stuff like that ever play in the mind of a driver? Because as a fan, I think it's really fascinating to know. 100%. 100%. You're, you're very well aware of who you're racing. And drivers have a pretty long things that happen on track and, and you do drivers who kind of race you with respect and kind of look out for you a little bit you do tend to give them a little bit more space make sure that you know at the edges of the corner they've got room and then guys who've not been as as fair with you 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 know you tend to return the favor when you know when they're in a wrong position so you you definitely have drivers you you don't mind you don't mind competing with you like racing with and there's definitely drivers that you know you kind of hate finding on the track but that's that's part of the sport you got to still deal with them all and the thing that kind of reins you in is you know it's still a dangerous thing and you're you're both relying on one another to a certain extent to keep each other safe so you do have to always have that level of mutual respect but um you know there's shades of gray and all that and i think you don't give the benefit of the doubt to some guys that you would to others that's really fascinating to, to learn, Brian. And like you mentioned as well, it's like the nuanced points of, you know, either leaving the space or not leaving the space, building kind of a trust and rapport with some drivers where you know there's like that sportsmanship between you guys and then other drivers where you look at them, you're saying, okay, they might try something a bit off here. Let me kind of live to fight for another day and, you know, take into, in, into account as well the danger aspect of, you know, motor racing, especially at such a high proficient level as well. So um, I think that's a really interesting one for fans to take insight into. But also, Brian, you know, um, I, I also want to give Colton his attention as well, because I'll just say from this side of the pond in Europe, uh, Brian, that Colton is an enigma. He's a phenomenon. He's always on the limit. And just as a spectator, as a fan, somebody watching, you know, from even a TV, when the when, when all the cameras pan over to Colton, you know that there's going to be a great show in terms of his overtaking, in terms of his tire management, in terms of fuel mileage. Colton really has it all. And I think to get to the elephant in the room, where a lot of us fans, F1 fans as well, feel 
like a real injustice, a real shame was committed was that we didn't get to see Colton make that crossover this year for the 2023 season into F1. And I think our frustrations are mirrored not only by the fans, but also by other fellow IndyCar drivers that came out at the time and spoke about, you know, this kind of, I don't know, like a gap between the kind of IndyCar world and Formula One world and how antiquated the FIA's super license system is. Brian, you know, for a driver like Horton that has a very accomplished junior career in USF 2000, British F3, Indy Lights, what are your feelings, you know, towards the FIA? You know, what needs to change for us to be able to see more crossover between a series like IndyCar, which, again, I will strongly make the argument is not a feeder series into Formula One. I think that IndyCar competes with F1 in terms of the quality of drivers. And also to lead that question on as well, Brian, do you think that maybe some of the American teams get treated differently as well by like the FIA's organizing body? Because we've seen kind of a delay also with the Andretti uh, partnership. We've had like news, maybe they're going to team up with Cadillac and come in. But again, just whenever it involves either Colton or, or Andretti or just like an American team coming to Formula One, there seems to be some sort of obstacle to trade. So we'd love to get your honest opinions on, on, on that kind sure. of deal. Um. <clears throat> You know, I mean, just speaking here independently is just Colton's father. He wants to try and get a shot to do that. Um, but I think he and I both recognize that there are rules in place around the super license. And having an opinion about whether you think they're fair or not, it really doesn't change anything. It doesn't help. So, you know, the path is clear right now, right? To have a super license, you need to score 40 super license points. And that's just what it is. And right now, the only way he can do that is through IndyCar. So he's got to have a couple of really good seasons in IndyCar and get enough points to make himself eligible and then see if there's another opportunity for him. And really, it's, it's as simple as that. Um, I mean, IndyCar, I think, is an incredibly competitive championship it's not a junior formula so you know i think you could argue that it'd be great if it deserved more super license points than it currently gets but again that's not up that's not up to me or you know or us to decide you know all we can do is is read the rule book like anybody else and try and figure out a way to achieve the requirements that they have in order to earn a license I think that was a really fair and, and honest answer there as well, Brian. And thank you for that because, you know, I think it's nice to know it's not just us as the fans that are frustrated, but also, you know, even from a diplomatic standpoint that, you know, like these things are in place. Unfortunately, it means that maybe Colton will have to jump through some extra hurdles and hoops to kind of get through to that end goal if it is Formula One that he wants to do. But we still have that hope and we still have that desire to see him because Brian, I'll be honest with you. Just when I watch Colton, it's just like, you just don't know what's going to happen next. I remember that race last year. I don't know if you remember at Indianapolis where you had the wet circuit and it was slightly drying, but still very dangerously wet. Colton, and I think you would probably have had a lot to do with that call, had like instructed him to come in a lap early to do the undercut onto the, um, the, the I think it was the, the Reds, whilst everyone else was out on the, the wet tire or intermediates. And then I think a lap later, Pato had tried to respond and he hadn't had that extra lap of track knowledge, but also the, the, the tire temperature to sustain any grip. So 
Colton goes for this very like enigmatic kind of move down the inside. He almost loses the back end and then just the car control to drift the car around the corner and still get the move done on Pato Ward was probably one of the best overtakes I've seen in my life, Brian. And like, bear in mind, I'm only 27, so I just missed out on uh, Black's kind of a golden era of kart. But I think for me, this is somebody that's been trying to get more and more into IndyCar. That was a sensational move. And it's one that we st we even talk about in the group chats and we continue to send videos about. And, you know, it's, it's almost become almost like a Hurtamania 2.0 moment for us, if you would excuse the, uh, the kind of comparisons there. So, you know, to kind of soften the mood a bit there, Brian, then, how would well, you describe... Go on, sorry. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that was uh, that was an amazing event, race for him. Uh, I... I can't take any credit for the call. He he was the one that called. We were we were going to leave him another lap uh, before we changed from you know changed to the dry tires, <clears throat> and he was the one that called and said, "No, I want to go now." And and so you have to trust you know the driver's the one out there who knows what he's feeling, see, he knows what he's seeing, <clears throat> and in those moments the track is literally changing almost corner by corner as it's drying out. And, you know, I was really proud of him that he, he made a gutsy call and it paid off. So it was fun to watch. Um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in that I get to participate with him in the races. I get to talk to him on the radio and help call the strategy. Uh, and, you know, there's an extra bonus as, you know, being a, a father, you know, there's a sense of pride when, when he does something really, really amazing like that to be able to be that close to it and share it with him. Well, I'm actually really glad you mentioned that as well, Brian, because it's one of the questions in the list of many, which at some point we'll have to probably ask you on another episode if we can have the privilege of having you again. But just on that topic there of like the, fa the father-son dynamic there, Brian, you know, how does that work between you and Colton? And, you know, watching enough of Colton's races as well, I know at times, sometimes he can get a bit frustrated if they're like at a street circuit and it's hard to overtake and he's stuck in traffic. Or, you know, maybe again with like the... The, the final 10 shootout or the preceding event before that in qualifying, you can get stuck in traffic and then, you know, get compromised. How do you manage to kind of like, you know, tell him the relevant information that he needs and be brutally honest, but at the same time manage Colton's expectations and emotions throughout a race as well? Well, I don't know. <clears throat> you know, it's, uh, I, I've been lucky to have been around a lot of great drivers over my career, teammates and friends and then work with a number of drivers on the radio now since I stopped driving and Colton's let's say the latest one of those. And, you know, so I've been able to kind of bring some of all those experiences with me and that that's helped me. I think I just try and think about what I would want to know in a moment when I'm out there driving, what, you know, what kind of questions would I have or what information would I be looking for or would be helpful to me? And I try and give them that. And yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult thing. And I, I haven't been on a radio with any driver that doesn't go through emotions throughout the race. You know, you've got a lot of adrenaline going and, you know, you can have frustration, happiness, anger, all those things. And, you know, I think people find it intriguing because I'm his dad. And so sometimes, you know, I've had other drivers, you know, get upset on the radio and, and nobody thinks twice about it because it's, I'm his dad. There's like an intrigue, like, oh, well, you know, does that up? You know, does that upset you if he yells at you or says something you don't like? <clears throat> but for me, it doesn't because, um, you know, we're working. And, you know, my job is to give him information to help keep him calm, keep him focused on the job. Just like 
just like any driver and strategist are doing during the race. Um, I can tell you that our interaction out of the car is never like that. As a matter of fact, I don't think we've ever had an argument in our entire lives. We're both kind of very calm individuals. So, so I think he and I separate those, those times, right? When we're working, when he's on the radio, we're, we're doing a job. We're competing at a very high level. And we're trying to do the best, both of us, do the best in our individual roles. Absolutely, right. And, you know, it's so impressive just to see that level of professionalism and almost just a parallel of, you know, Colton Herter and Ryan Herter, race engineer and racing driver, to, you know, like Ryan Herter and Colton Herter, father and son, just in personal life as well. And just to see the, the insights as well, because, you know, you've been behind the wheel be uh, before, Brian, and you know what it's like to go through those moments and to go through the frustrations, to go through, you know, things that aren't in your control and it's very interesting this is a follower and a fan to hear about the dynamics in that way and just before i hand over to black because i'm really conscious of the time here as well brian you know one last question on colton i wanted to ask was how did we go about like adapt to adapting colton and you know the physical kind of preparation for some of the stuff that he's done for mclaren in terms of the private tests um, also, I'll give you a funny kind of story as well here, Brian. When we had Mario Cheeky Plug here for the podcast last year, he gave us a very insightful story that Colton may have, uh, you know, beat a certain Finnish uh, ice cream driver known as Kimi Raikkonen and another uh, Italian driver known as uh, Italian Jesus, uh, Antonio Giovinazzi, um, in some very competitive uh, times in the simulator as well in his kind of work with Alfa Romeo too. So even in the sim and even just like, in real life with the private test, how does a, a, like an IndyCar driver prep themselves for like the high G-forces and almost like, you know, the work on the neck and other stuff that comes with like preparing for F1? Well, you know, a lot of those things, you know, I don't specifically work with him on anymore. You know, he's got a team of people that help him. Uh, he works out with Pit Fit. They did a lot of training specific to the demands of Formula One specifically around the neck uh you know he, he had purchased several neck machines that add, got added to his gym i noticed and you know he spent a lot of time physically preparing because everybody told him your neck's gonna fall off your neck's gonna fall off. don't worry it happens to everybody and so he just kind of was like well screw that then i'm gonna not let it happen to me because that's gonna stand out and i think that's one of the things that mclaren and the others were impressed with was he showed up physically ready to drive the car and, but that's, that's him, right? You have to have that desire. If you have the desire and you're willing to put in the work, then you identify, okay, is it physical? Is it mental? You know, do I need to spend time on sim stuff? What do I need to do to get ready? And luckily McLaren put him through a really good program, gave him great information. Um, you know, even back to when he spent the entire uh, Miami Grand Prix weekend with them behind the scenes, listening on the radios, doing track walks. So by the time he actually got in the car, he had half an idea of how they worked, how their engineering systems were. And it's it's just doing the work ahead of time. It's just being prepared. And if you do that, then then you can focus on the, the important bit, which is the driving the car fast. 
absolutely there, Brian. And it's just interesting to, to hear that from you and also just to see the level of dedication and also just the amount of effort and, you know, like resources required just, you know, to get like an athlete because these drivers are, are athletes, you know, they're almost like gladiators these days, like fighting with these things that have so much power and very, you know, little in the way sometimes of mechanical grip to perform at the optimum level. So very interesting. And what I'll do is I'll hand back to Black because I'm very conscious of the time. So Black, go for him. Thank you very much. I, I just have one uh, question for you, um, and and it relates to the Indy 500. Um, and I'm I'm getting a, a sense that you're actually quite a modest guy for everything that you've achieved, um, because when you look at it as a driver, because of the split, um, as, as you know about, but some of our listeners may not, where Champ Car and the Indy Racing League were running in parallel, um, you didn't get in your prime a long a, like every single year the chance to race at Indy. Um, yet you still came away with a third place, best finish. And then after you retired, you coached um, both, or you, you were the team leader for both Dan Weldon and then my favorite IndyCar driver, cheap plug, uh, Alexander Rossi, to win the Indy 500. So first of all, could you give our listeners a sense of what the spectacle of Indy is like, what it's like to win, or what it takes to win, and then any reflections on on Dan um, who sadly is obviously no longer with us. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, Indianapolis, especially, you know, here in the States, it's, it's the biggest race ever. It is still the largest single day sporting event in the world. There's hundreds of thousands of people there. There's millions and millions of more worldwide watching the race. And so, you know, even though, it's mostly the same drivers and teams that you're competing with at Long Beach or Laguna Seca or some of these other tracks. You spend two weeks there testing, preparing. There's a qualifying process that's your four fastest laps, multiple attempts. So the thing about Indy is if you can win that race, you know you beat everybody on their best day because everybody puts the most effort into that race, the preparation for the cars, the wind tunnel time that we do that's that's everybody's best effort so when you win that race i think there's an incredibly high level of satisfaction that comes with it you know i was never able to do it as a driver but you know i was able to compete in five indianapolis 500s uh the first the first one at the start of my career for aj foy it was my first indycar race and as you mentioned cart and indycar split uh, or irl split and so for many, many years, I raced in the in the car, Champ Car Series, and we didn't go to the Indy 500. So it wasn't until 2003, so almost almost 10 years, nine years, I didn't race there before I came back. And I was able to do, you know, four more at the end of my career and had some good results, led races, which was great. But the scale of that event, it, it's just it's just different, you know, and it's the one race where you can win, you know, road America or mid Ohio and you won a race. But if you win the Indy 500, it's, it's the only time it's the only race where when you walk into a room, they introduce you as Indy 500 champion. So-and-so. So it, it's a life changing experience. And it's, it's, it's the closest thing we have here to, to being world champion, right? When you win a F1 world championship for the rest of your life, you are, a world champion and and winning the Indy 500 is like that 
So, you know, to have been part of it as a driver and then as a team owner and, and have been part of two, you know, really great wins. And you mentioned with Dan, obviously that's, that's an emotional and, and important memory for me. I was lucky enough to be teammates with Dan and we had a great friendship and that's really what spawned us working together. Yeah, I know when we when we ran the Indy 500, it was the second time we'd ever run an Indy, Indy car race. It was the second time we'd run the Indy 500. And the first time, I think we were the slowest qualifier in the race. So, you know, why Dan agreed to drive for me or why he believed enough in our team that we could actually try and win the thing is beyond me. But he did, and his faith in us and his faith, he, he would show up to the track every day and say, you know, we're going to, I'm here to win. We're going to win this race. And he was so adamant about it. I don't think any of us ever believed it until he just kept telling us we were going to do it. And suddenly, you know, the whole team rallied around him. Nobody wanted to let him down. Nobody wanted to be the one that kept him from winning the Indy 500 because he was just determined and adamant that he was going to win it. And, uh, you know, he, he carried us on his back through that month and and really that win was magical and and you know now knowing that you know we lost him later on that year in, in an accident um you know you just sometimes you don't understand things or why they happen or how they happen but you know i i'm not a big i'm not a big spiritualist but i just feel strongly like that that race was destined for him and and we were lucky to kind of ride along with him Thank you for the for sharing that and um appreciate it it can't have um been easy but um as you say some things are, are meant to be and what a fantastic victory <laughs> second victory for the funny thing about dan is right dan, dan was not shy and he he loved attention so he would love he would love that i'm talking about it. It, it it does bring a smile to my face too to to know that like i, I can still hear him kind of his voice in my head going come on her to bees tell him tell him you know he would you would love that we're talking about it and we want to share those stories and we want people to know and remember all the amazing things that dan did because he was he was one of the all-time greats at that place and, and when you talk about attention you know it's dan weldon should be better known in the uk it's a bit like what you were saying about the f1 in the early 90s not having a huge amount of eyes on from the us i think Dan's career in the US wasn't followed as well as it could have been by kind of obviously the motorsport aficionados are absolutely understood. But beyond that, you know, he could probably walk down the high street in the UK and, you know, only only the hardcore fans would know. So I'm glad he's getting some attention in 2023. Um, and that's fantastic. Um, absolutely. So, Brian, thank you for that. Just um, before you have to go, um, you had another winner. Um, as part of uh, Andretti Herta Autosport in, by the name of Alexander Rossi, who is still in the uh, IndyCar racing lineup. Any, any, um, any reflections on that year, the rookie winner of the Indy 500? And, and segueing from that, how do you see this season? Um, you know, he's an active driver. He's just changed teams. Colton raring to go. How do you see this season? So reflections on that, and then how do you see the season? Yeah. I mean, it's it's unique because it was an equally unlikely win for different reasons. You know, our team had just partnered with Andretti. And so, and Alexander had never 
done an oval race in his life prior to Phoenix that year. So this was his second, I think second ever oval race was the Indy 500 and hadn't had a great start to the year. Had kind of had some mixed results, but um, he took to that place like a duck to water. We had a really good fast car and then, <laughs> then disaster struck in the race. We had two horrible pit stops early on. And so he went to 33rd twice in the race. And it was really that that forced us into an alternate pit strategy, trying to make the race finish on one less stop. Uh, but, you know, so we we, out, we won because we saved fuel and stopped one less time than everybody else. It was an amazing job that Alex did to be able to pull that off. But I like to point out one of the interesting footnotes is Alexander also had the fastest lap of the race that year. And so even though we won on fuel mileage, um, you know, I always try and remind people the reason we were able to make the fuel mileage and do as well as we did is because we had a damn fast driver and race car. And, and you know, you, you can't just limp around that place to, to win it. So he did a great job. And I've, I've, I've come to consider Alexander a, a great friend and somebody I have a tremendous amount of respect for as a person and certainly in the car as well. And, I you know, I, I hate that he's not going to be with us in Andretti. Uh, this coming year, because I know what a what a tough competitor he's going to be, and I I fear that you know the switch to McLaren might just be the thing that you know wakes up and revives his career, and he might he might be he might be a lot to handle this coming year. I, I certainly wouldn't bet against him. Um, I mean, we can't wait for the season to start. We're really looking forward to it. We offer you know our best wishes to to Colton. Um, and to, you know, the, the entertainment that we get every year and the, the fan base growing on this side of the Atlantic as well. Um, we, we ask a bit of a jovial question um, to all of our guests and even Mario Andretti, I should say. Um, but before I ask it, I assume, Mr. Herter, that you, you, enjoy, you enjoy pizza from time to time. <laughs> I do like pizza. Fantastic. Okay, it's not a setup. Don't worry. We're not going to. It's not. not okay. a <laughs> I'm, I'm cautiously. I'm cautiously waiting to see where this goes. I could tell you're like, yes, I think so. Uh, okay. So, uh, simple question: pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Oh, that's an easy one. Yes. Ooh, oh my god, I love you, Brian. <laughs> Obviously, yes. Team pineapple. Not all the one time. More. <clears throat> not on every pizza, but yes, yes. In the right circumstance, a hundred percent. Fantastic. You are uh, probably the leader of Team Pineapple. Fantastic, Brian. Uh, <laughs> I'm happy I'll, to carry that flag. Fantastic. I'll hand over to Denz, who will ask uh, that final sort of closing question and close us out. But it's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Brian, for your time. All right. Thank you. Uh, Brian, thank you for that, too. I was chuckling in the background because, uh, yeah, that's like a very infamous question on this podcast. When we asked Mario last year, he was to put it lightly, fuming that we could do such a thing with a delicacy like pizza and then put pineapple on it. Well, so he's, a, he's, a, he's Italian, so it's it's different. I, I, I get it. <laughs> and far, far be it for me to, to contradict Mario Andretti on anything. <laughs> love that, Brian. Thank you. Well, as uh, Black said as well, Brian, you know, we were so excited when we learned that you were going to be joining us today as well. Really hope that, you know, you've enjoyed this experience as well. And hopefully uh, through KT, we can get you on in the future as well, maybe even with Colton. But uh, we just wanted to say a huge thanks to you, Brian. We wish you all the best with your endeavors this year with Brian Herter, 
Autosport as well in the TCR and other racing uh, platforms that you're doing as well. And also, obviously, the young Colton too, you know, like him making is his debut for um, the LMP class this year then? Yes, yeah, it's his, he's a, so he, if he, if he could pull this off, he'll, he'll have won the 24 hours in three different classes. So we're, I got my fingers crossed for him, but this is his first time driving a, a, the, uh, well, it's first time for everyone else as well in LMDH because it's a new category, but first time in the, in the top prototype category, he's done, he's done the GT class, he's done LMP2, so this is the first time in this one. Oh, that is super awesome. And like we said before, we'll be rooting for him. Really do hope as well that, you know, he's able to get, you know, the, the kind of right circumstances and, and able to pull off that very victorious uh, 24 hours of Daytona Rolex race victory as well. We'd love to see that. And we're super excited for, you know, the season ahead as well in terms of the IndyCar series too. So, Brian, we'll leave actually the final word for you. For all your crazy Hurtamania fans out there, and just for all our listeners as well, um, what are your final words you'd like to say before we go? Well, just appreciate you guys. Appreciate what you're doing for the sport. You know, we have a great, we have a, we have a mutual passion and love, and for motorsport, and it's a thing that can bring us together. And I just, when I see sometimes people want to be negative or, or use it to tear us apart, I just. I just hope that uh, we all can remember that we've got that in common and, and that's something we can all rally around. Absolutely there, Brian. You know, I definitely echo your sentiments there and agree with the positive message. And thank you as well for those really lovely comments as well. Because as a small channel, you know, it, it's very amazing, you know, when we get any guest, but especially a guest of your caliber, experience, knowledge, you know, an insight into the world of motorsport, it really does mean the world to us. So thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, guys, it's been another legendary episode of the Stripping the Dipping podcast. Make sure that you like, that you share, that you circulate this with all your friends, families, and, uh, you know, fellow motorsport enthusiasts too. And a huge shout out to Katie for making this possible, and uh, for Georgina as well for plucking up the courage as well to, to approach Brian and his team and everyone as well. So until next time, guys, it's been AMG Dens, aka Denzel Clarkson, and my amazing co-host as well, F1 Black. Until next time, take it easy, and we're out. Peace. <laughs>